Eucharistic sacrifice in 1 Corinthians. There are two common problems made in contemporary approaches to sacrificial language in Paul's letters. The first mistake is to construct a universal notion of sacrifice from one or more Greek sacrifices and then apply this construct to all sacrifices cross-culturally. This approach fixates on sacrifice as a convivial meal on the one hand, Jean-Pierre Vernon, Marcel Détienne, or on the other, it fixates on sacrifice as the brutal killing of an animal, for example, Walter Berkert or René Girard. Contemporary treatments of ancient Mediterranean sacrificial practices rightly subvert these reductionist fixations. Ancient Mediterranean sacrifices were processes combining various elements, purifications, adornment of persons, offerings and places, music, dancing, processions, preparation of animal and or vegetable offerings, prayers, manipulation of the offering by pouring, placing and or burning on an altar, um, division and possibly consumption of sacrificial food, and finally commemorative depictions of the sacrifice, usually of the processions to or prayers at an altar. Search for the single action that gives meaning to all sacrifices is no longer tenable. The second mistake is to construct types of Jewish sacrifices and then equate Paul's metaphorical language with them in a simplistic way. Obviously, Paul does make metaphors from various Jewish sacrifices and practices. But to foreground the background eclipses Paul's actual usage of such language, which is usually far more evocative than it is academically precise. For example, Paul puns on the word sin in referring to Jesus' death as a sin offering, condemning sin in his flesh, Romans 8.3. Strictly speaking, Paul's pun is off kilter because the sin offering purifies from ritual impurity. It does nothing about sin. Uh, I refer everyone, I recommend heartily everyone read the work of Jacob Milgram on the purification sacrifice. Um, Leviticus and Numbers themselves say that there is no sacrifice for high-handed sin, that is, voluntary sin. And by the, uh, by the first century, Philo and Josephus both refer to the sin offering as being for involuntary transgressions of the law, and the so-called guilt offering uh, as referring to the um, voluntary transgressions of the law. So Paul, in making a pun between the sin offering and the um, perihamatias, and then Jesus condemning sin in the flesh, is a pun, but it really doesn't refer to the actual sacrificial practices concerning the hatat. Throughout his reading, throughout his letters, Paul identifies the Messiah's death on the cross as a sacrificial offering. Indeed, Paul combines various sacrificial acts found in the Torah to depict the power of the death of the Son of God as a kind of meta-sacrificial offering, not only amalgamating the temple cult with Jesus' death, but also transforming the very meaning of sacrifice itself. In 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of the Eucharist as a sacrificial meal to prohibit idolatry to his pagan converts and to counter abuses at the celebration of the rite. Paul's most explicit and clearest presentation presentation of the nature of sacrifice concerns, concerns Eucharistic sacrifice so that it is precisely the Eucharistic sacrifice 
that can explain the sacrificial soteriology of the cross. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22, provides Paul's own analysis of the nature of sacrifice. Sacrifice of whatever kind enacts koinonia between a given human community and its divine patron or patrons by means of the sacrificial offering and the sacrificial meal. Um, it's important to underline that the lowest possible Christology that could be constructed for Paul sees Paul um, sees Jesus as the mediator of creation, so that all of the other cosmic powers, um, including the pagan gods, were created by Jesus. Pagans uh, offer sacrifices to pagans offer sacrifices to daimonia, godlings, and enter into embodied communion with them by eating the sacrificial food. Israel, according to the flesh, enters into koinonia with the altar by means of eating sacrificial food in Jerusalem. The prominence of the altar points to the role of the sacrificial offering, since the altar is the locus of encounter between the holiness of God and his people Israel through the ministry of Aaronite priests. This eating enacts Israel's socially embedded and embodied communion with divine holiness. Just as idolaters suffered demonic infection by sharing the table and cup, cup of their, go, their gods, and just as the Jews in Jerusalem are suffused with divine holiness by partaking of the most holy things, so too those who are being saved are united to the body and blood of the Lord by sharing the one loaf and partaking of the cup. The koinonia of the body and blood of the Messiah emphasizes koinonia with his sacrificial death. In 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, those who eat and drink the sacrificial meal unworthily are liable for the body and blood of the Lord, i.e. for his death. Misuse of the meal is abuse of the offering. Those who do not discern the body of the sacrificial meal eat at the sacrificial meal, eat and drink condemnation for themselves so that sickness and death invade the ecclesia. Profanation of the sacrificial meal is an abomination that pollutes the whole community. We must ask, as Paul does at 1 Corinthians 1.13, has Christ been divided? Certainly not. The koinonia of the body and blood of the Messiah is both the socially embedded and embodied communion with the heavenly body of the Lord and the socially embedded and embodied communion with the sacrificial death. Emphasis upon the social and corporeal dimensions of koinonia is necessary because the anachronistic notions of the autonomous individual and of Cartesian dualism distort Pauline usage. A short aside is useful at this point. The next paragraph for the translator, the next paragraph is not in the draft, the draft you have. I would situate my own reading of the spirit between Dale Martin's and Volker Robin's reading. Martin overplays his hand asserting the necessary materiality and impersonality of the spirit in Paul's letters. I would rather allow the materiality of the spirit to remain an open question and point to the embodied character of the spirits dwelling in the saints. Robbins, rightly emphasizing the personal character of the breath of God and the breath of the Messiah, overdoes his psychosocial analysis in a de facto disembodied way. Recognizing the ontological character of reception of the spirit undergirds its relationality. Moreover, many hold that the, the spiritual body, the soma pneumaticon, is composed solely of pneuma, spirit. 
They are mistaken because its parallel, soma psychikon, the animal body, is not composed solely of psyche, anima. The better parallel for the stuff of the resurrection body would be the contrast between the first Adam, who is the dusty one, ho, hoikos, and from the earth dusty, ekges hoikos, and the last Adam, who is ho eporanios, the high heavenly one, and ex uranu, from heaven. So instead of overspecifying the stuff of the resurrection body, it is better to suppose that it is some kind of Hule epuranios, high heavenly matter, so that the breath of the Messiah unites the ecclesia to the heavenly body of Christ without in any way collapsing pneumatology and Christology. So, what distinguishes the koinonia of the Lord's body and blood from the koinonia of the Messiah and his spirit? On the one hand, the koinonia Christu correlates precisely to the koinonia of adoption a.k.a. the koinonia of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Son of God indwells the saints so that they are able to cry out, Abba, Father. Those who are in the Messiah and Christo share in his divine sonship. This is the essential structure of Pauline soteriology, accounting not only for getting in and staying in, but also for the telos of the process, eschatological glorification through, with, and in the Messiah. On the other hand, the koinonia of the Lord's body and blood emphasizes the salvific dimension of this koinonia accomplished in the, on the cross. In other words, the sacrificial koinonia stresses the twofold koinonia that structures salvation in Paul's thought. This twofold koinonia reflects what the Father's will get from Paul, which is the admirabile commercium the admirable exchange of we give Jesus death and he gives us life. So that one, the Son of God's koinonia with us humans unto bodily death is a, is a koinonia with a human condition in its need for salvation. Our plight, our need for salvation, centers around three overlapping categories. Firstly, apocalyptic divine wrath. Secondly, slavery to cosmic powers, and Paul has, um, uh, Paul has quite the um, astonishing array of cosmic powers, from personifications of sin and death to traditional um, Satan, the accuser, the tempter, um, to even um, to various kinds of pneumata, to the pagan gods, and finally, my favorite, the table, the periodical table the table of elements, Tastohea. Finally, there is the plight of entropy. The schema of this world is passing away. Um, the human body is destined to die and rot in the grave. Um, everything is falling apart. Now, the Son of God's koinonia with us in these three issues uh, is um, reversed because he then shares with us um, his divine sonship. So that his koinonia with us in our neediness is then um, translated into our consequent koinonia in his divine sonship. At 2 Corinthians 5.21, although he knew not sin, he became sin in order that we become the righteousness of God. The Son of God, by entering into koinonia with sinful humans unto death, 
provides them with koinonia with his divine sonship, precisely by emphasizing the role of his human body and blood. Or again at Romans 8, 3, 4, regarding the Torah's incapacity because it was weak on account of the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of the flesh of sin and as a purification offering, condemned sin in the flesh so that the ordinance of the Torah be fulfilled in us slash by us, uh, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Sin had to be condemned in the flesh of the sinless Son of God by death, so that the Torah could be filled in us by our walking according to the spirit. The Messiah's koinonia with sinful humans by his birth death, and the koinonia of those endowed with the spirit in his righteousness. Moreover, the trajectory of the so-called hymn in Philippians 2, from incarnation to enthronement, can be understood soteriologically because the Messiah's obedience unto death instantiates God's salvific will for Israel and the nations. The trajectory entails the Lord's taking on the form of a slave and becoming obedient unto death in order to, to be exalted and enthroned in the heavenly places. This analysis is further borne out by 1 Corinthians 11.25. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Just as the Eucharistic loaf is the koinonia of the body of the Messiah, and the Eucharistic cup is the koinonia of his blood, so too this cup is the new covenant in his blood shed in sacrifice. In other words, the Eucharist affects the koinonia that is the new covenant inaugurated on the cross. The covenant is now more than the contractual framework of God's election of his people Israel. It is now the eschatological reality of the Son of God's koinonia unto death, with those chosen from Israel and the nations who were perishing, so that they now become those who are being saved by entering into koinonia in his messianic divine sonship. Turning to 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13, we discover that the above analysis illuminates the notion of Christ as Passover sacrifice. In this passage, Christ is identified as the Passover sacrificial offering and exhorts the Corinthians to celebrate the Passover feast in moral purity. The Passover sacrificial offering and the Passover sacrificial meal are inseparable. Indeed, Pesach is unique among the sacrifices in the Jerusalem temple because it requires the nation, represented by those present in the temple, to divide up so that everyone can partake of the sacrificial victims. The point of the Passover sacrificial offering is the post-Passover meal. Just as the Passover sacrifice was the anamnesis of Israel's liberation from national slavery in Egypt and prophylaxis against God's wrath upon the Egyptians spilling over onto Israel, so the sacrificial meal of the Eucharist is the anamnesis of the ecclesia's eschatological liberation from slavery to the cosmic cosmic powers and prophylaxis against God's apocalyptic wrath upon the cosmos spilling over onto those who are in Christ. It is precisely by the Messiah's taking on the form of a slave and becoming obedient unto death, Philippians 2.7, that those who are in Christ are liberated from the slavery to the various and sundry cosmic powers 
including prominently ta stoichea, the table of elements, thereby being saved in hope by the indwelling of the Spirit, awaiting the full manifestation of the freedom of the glorious children of God, Romans 8.21. Likewise, Jesus rescues believers from the coming wrath, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, precisely by becoming sin with us in order to make us the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. The koinonia is consistently twofold. In order to understand Paul's notion of sacrifice, one should begin with how Paul uses the, the notion itself. Beginning with biblical notions of how Israelite sacrifices function, or with the attempt to construct a universal notion of sacrifice, merely distract from the primary role of sacrifice for Paul, to enact, accomplish, perform, and effect the socially embedded and embodied eschatological koinonia with the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Son of God partakes the mortality of human beings in order to share his glorious immortality with them. The Messiah shares the mortality of fallen human beings in order to share his divine sanctifying spirit with them. The Lord takes on the form of a slave unto death in order to liberate human beings enslaved to the cosmic powers. No matter what label one wants to put on the Messiah's death on the cross, purification, expiation, redemption, etc. That label works on the basis of twofold koinonia. Um, I say that not to reduce all models of atonement to just one, but rather to recognize there is a common element to all the various metaphors and uh, manners of speaking about atonement that Paul uses. Um, indeed, the twofold koinonia undergirds not only Paul's language of salvation as sacrifice, but also the related language of salvation as cosmic finance. Although he was rich, he became poor in order to enrich us by his poverty. Thank you for your attention. You mean I didn't provoke any any outbursts of anger or or disgust? on um, will, will be on the Incarnation. But I was arguing in this that the Incarnation is present in Pauline theology, but it is always linked to his death. So um, he took on the, flavor, the form of a slave and became obedient unto death. So that his death is really, 
that downward movement of the whole incarnation. So the, the point of the incarnation is to lead to his death, which is sharing in the abyss of the human condition, sharing in uh, the human radical need for salvation, radical need for rescue from this body of death, from this body of sin. So, um, so, um, so it, it can't stop with the incarnation. It can't stop with the incarnation because the incarnation doesn't stop. The incarnation, is, the movement of the incarnation downward is unto death and to Hades, the, the netherworld. So, um, so it's untrue to the, say, the movement of the Philippians hymn, but also to all the ways in which Paul talks about our, um, the koinonia of God, uh, the, the Son of God with the human condition and all of its fallenness, brokenness, um, uh, corruptibility, etc. Thank you, Father Gregory. I just have a question, perhaps to clarify a little bit. Uh, you mentioned that um, in the uh, book of Leviticus, uh, the sin offering is for purifying our uh, ritual impurity. Mm -hmm. And Galatians says that um, Christ became sin, or our sin offering. Does that mean uh, or can we interpret that as Christ's uh, sin offering for us enables us to be pure, to offer sacrifice to God? Um, I think, excuse me, I think sacrifice is a very important um, concept for understanding the various kinds of atonement. Um, because sin is not merely um, a legal debt. Sin is also dirt, it's also a wound, it's also, um, uh, it's also various other things. So just as it can be conceived, it can be a burden. So sin can be, there, there's, there's all these different metaphors for sin. And so taking away, the remedy for sin is a multidimensional set of metaphors as well. So purification is one of those metaphors, and I think that it's underutilized for this, especially in relation to the Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur sacrifices. Uh, what I would say, on the other hand, is that Christ becoming sin does not refer to the sin offering. It refers to Christ, um, although he knew no sin, Christ became the very icon of sin uh, by his death. Looking at Christ crucified, we see what human beings do to themselves and to each other every day on the cross. It, um, sin itself is a, a kind of suicide slash murder, a kind of um, a kind of uh, self destruction and destruction of others. So, if we want to look what sin looks like, it looks like Jesus hanging on a cross. So he became sin in order to make us the righteousness of God. Now Christ is our righteousness, as 1 Corinthians says, um, so that it is not an either-or between Christ's righteousness and our righteousness in Christ. They're both the same thing. Um, there isn't an uh, impulse thought, there isn't an opposition between us and Jesus that way. For example, in Philippians he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, 
because God is the one who is in, at work in you both to will and to do. Notice that the because explains why we should work out salvation precisely in fear and trembling. The fear and trembling is not, not that our sinfulness is greater than God's power, but rather our fear and trembling is the natural response to the presence and activity of our God. So our, our conduct is an epiphany of God being at work in us, both to will and to do, both in our use and in our body. And so we, um, we can say that um, our working out of salvation is not something separable from God's being at work in us. On the contrary, the reason why we should have fear and trembling is precisely because it's God is present and active, which is scary. suffering, and that's why you're going to get the payoff. 
Notice further that when, when, um, when Christ redeems us, that is, he buys us out of debt slavery, we're not thereby left uh, liberated slaves who are impoverished. Christ enriches us. So what we have is a massive windfall profit. Not just are we, uh, and also that's, that's not uncommon in Roman experience. Some of the richest people in, in Rome were freed slaves. So, um, so it's a matter of, um, uh, or for example, it says, in, after talking about justification in chapter 10 of Romans, he says, he says there's no distinction between Jews and Greeks uh, because God has enriched all those who call upon his name. So, um, so the, koinonia, the koinonia is massively ontological because it is the sharing of the spirit, but it's also financial and has all sorts of other metaphorical uh, nuances that are also there as well. So trying to reduce a comp as complex a set of metaphors as koinonia to mean A and not B, or one thing and not another, really doesn't work very well because koinonia functions in so many different ways in his, in his thought. say is that I would, not, I, I would not accept the distinction between the agape and the Eucharist. I don't think that in 1 Corinthians there is such a, a distinction. You might argue for one in the next century, but not in, in 1 Corinthians. They're the same thing. Secondarily, um, I don't think Paul would distinguish between the human dimension of fraternity and our ontological connection with Jesus. So the supernatural dimension and the natural dimension are not so terribly divorced in Paul. Indeed, the basis for the natural affect affectivity is precisely the, the supernatural koinonia. Uh, 